This is The Guardian. Today, Kherson is liberated. What next for the war in Ukraine? The Ukrainian president treated this as a moment to savor. I'm happy we are, we are in Kherson. Dressed simply in a green puffer jacket and combat trousers, Vladimir Zelensky ambled through the center of Kherson, a city that had for eight months been under Russian control. People, people waited for the Ukrainian army, for our soldiers, for all of us. Where Ukrainian people had been tortured, Tens of thousands forced from their homes where everything they owned, from cars down to their children's toys, had been ransacked by Russian troops. On Thursday, those troops were finally sent back. And the Ukrainian people reclaimed their city. A Ukrainian soldier walked among the crowds. In one arm, he cradled a watermelon, the fruit that has come to symbolize this region that has continued to grow green and plump as this bloody, destructive war has gone on. We endured, he said, for our future. Kherson, which is in the south of Ukraine, bordering Crimea, is the only regional capital the Russian forces had taken in this conflict. And they're losing it, President Zelensky said, marked the beginning of the end of the war. The Guardian's foreign correspondent Luke Harding has been in Ukraine both in the lead-up to and after this withdrawal and has seen how Kherson has become central to Russia's campaign. It was supposed to be a kind of key part of Putin's new imperium. And back in September, Putin said that Kherson, the surrounding province, they were now Russia. And not only were they Russia, they would be Russian territory forever. Now, if you fast forward to where we are now, this dream, this irredentist fantasy of a, of a greater Russia in which all of southern Ukraine would be part of Russian territory has come crashing down. Yesterday, the Russian forces retaliated. In Kherson, it'll be in the weeks and months to come that we'll begin to see the reality of the damage they've left there, what they did to people and why many didn't survive. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, reclaiming Kherson, what Russia's retreat tells us about the fight for Ukraine. Luke, we're recording this the day after Russia announced that it was withdrawing its troops from Kherson. And I know that at the moment you're staying in an area just northeast of the city. Can you tell me, first of all, I mean, had there been any signs in the lead up to this withdrawal that the Russian forces were losing power in that area? It's been a really incredible and fast moving week. I mean, we've known actually really, I would say, since... 
second half of October that it was probable the Russians were going to pull out of Kherson city and the surrounding province on the right bank of the Dnieper. And you didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to work out the clues. I, I mean, the Russian troops started taking away cultural relics and monuments. They they grubbed up the bones of uh, Grigory Potemkin or Potemkin, who was Catherine the Great's friend and lover, which were at Curzon's main cathedral in a crypt. There was an art gallery, rather a good one, but the Russians last week loaded all of the exhibits, several thousand of them, onto trucks and stole them. Uh, I suspect we'll never see those again. And also the, the Russian flag was taken down from, from several key buildings, including the main administration building. So it looked as if something was happening. And what was the purpose of all the looting? Is that an attempt to sort of wipe out Ukrainian cultural heritage? I, I think, one, the Russians have looted because they can loot. But then separately, there's been a, an attempt to erase the symbols of Ukrainian statehood. So, for example, in one Kherson region village I, I visited this week, they'd blown up a statue of Taras Shevchenko, Ukraine's national poet, leaving behind a kind of weird column stump. You know, in areas they, they were planning to govern forever, they burned all the Ukrainian books and introduced a, a Russian curriculum, which gave the Kremlin's sort of mangled version of history. They banned the Ukrainian language. And really, it's a process of national erasure. They've clearly been preparing to leave for a while then. What had happened in terms of the development of the war to get the Russians to that point? I think what sort of changed things from a war perspective is really just the sort of delivery of modern, high-precision Western weapons. Earlier this week, I was with the 63rd Brigade, who'd been fighting in Kherson and Mykolaiv province, and I was watching three drone operators play with a screen with joysticks and, and call in artillery strikes on Russian positions. And so what, what, what's happened is that very clinically, the Ukrainians have been, have been rubbing out Russian logistics, destroying fuel dumps, bases, whacking the bridges over the Dnieper River, to the point where supplying Hesson for the Russians was almost impossible. And sort of sooner or later, this was going to happen. On the surface of it, this seems like a huge setback for the Russian government. How is Putin framing what's happened? I mean, the, the, the Kremlin never admits fault or defeat. I mean, the withdrawal from Kherson was presented as, as, a, as a necessary tactical move. Предлагается. And there was a eight-minute uh, video of the, the general in overall charge of the war, and Sergei Shoigu, um, his defense minister. Uh, and it was all very stagey and a bit weird, but I think it was the body language which told the story. I mean, they, they both looked... Terrible. And wooden. And pretty miserable. I, I, I mean, Russia is going backwards, and this fact is, is really, it's no longer possible to conceal that from the Russian public. I mean, even though the war is being presented in stridently patriotic terms, still, you know, Shoigu has to explain why Russia is not prevailing. And one interesting thing is how this is all going down in Russia, and the answer is very badly. Sort of patriotic nationalist bloggers are furious about the, the, the way that the Russian military operation has been unravelling.
How significant is this then for Ukraine? It's really a big moment for, for Ukraine's armed forces. And certainly the Ukrainians I've talked to, the, the soldiers, the officers, their morale is, is, is really high. And I mean, I, I think this is one of three defining moments in the war so far. The first was the Russian failure to take Kiev. The battered ruins of Russian military vehicles are scattered outside Kiev this morning. But a U.S. military official tells NBC News all Russian troops have left the region. And definitely the plan was to send in paratroopers to secure government buildings, to kill or arrest Zelensky, to install a, a, a pro-Russian puppet administration and to take over the entire country. That, that was the plan. That failed. Uh, I think the sort of second big failure was in the northeast. Ukraine appears to have won the battle for its second biggest city, Kharkiv. It says Russia has failed in its efforts to encircle the city. And now Russian armoured vehicles for about three days sort of entered the centre of Kharkiv with a view to taking that as well. That also failed. And really the third big failure was Russia's inability to, to hold on to Kherson. I mean, it's the only regional capital that they controlled and they've been forced to reluctantly abandon it. And this does feel like a pretty uplifting and rousing moment. Still, this is a region that's been under Russian occupation almost since the start of the war eight months ago. For the people who've stayed in Kherson during that time, what's it been like for them? So over the last few days, I've been touring parts of the Mykolaiv region and the Herzon uh, region. They, they border each other, which were liberated about a month ago by Ukrainian troops. They, they clawed back 88 villages and towns. And it's a prodigious mess. At least half of the, the, the houses have been destroyed. You've got roofless cottages, wonky electricity pylons, abandoned Russian armoured equipment, by the side of the road, tanks with holes in them burnt out, uh, the odd car with a V sign on it, which is the, the, the symbol of uh, Vladimir Putin's faltering invasion, and also sort of traumatised residents. I mean, I was in, a, um, in another pulverised village called Arkhangelsk and found a group of, of pensioners, most of them women. And they, they basically said it was a nightmare. I mean, I mean, it wasn't just the stealing, it was also the killing. A woman called Lena in her late 60s said that two married couples had been executed and the Russians had killed them because these residents had seen them stealing and carting off the contents from a private house and just, just, just gunned them down in cold blood. What's interesting about this is having reported from Ukraine really for almost a year now, and having been in Bucha and in Mariupol uh, and in liberated parts of Kharkiv province in the northeast, it's the same tragic picture of some residents disappearing, others <clears throat> being murdered in custody and, and tortured first, and, and very often people being shot for no reason whatsoever. In the city, in Kherson itself, again, we're only speaking within 24 hours of Russia announcing its withdrawal. And undoubtedly, you know, more details are going to come out of what's happened. Before the war, the city had a population of about 300,000 people. And 
now it's estimated to only be about 50 to 60,000. What's happened to those people during the Russian occupation? What we've seen, and that there have been multiple accounts of this, that the Russians have, have very clinically and systematically been searching um, and arresting and torturing and in some cases killing anyone they think with, who has a kind of pro-Ukrainian civic position inside Kherson. So we're talking about teachers, journalists, former soldiers, policemen, municipal officials. I was in Kiev last week and I went to a press conference held by a human rights organisation and there was a woman there called Aliona Labchuk, who's from Hezon, who was talking about what happened to her husband, uh, Vitaly, who was a sort of senior policeman. And he was delivering humanitarian supplies in late March after the Russians had come in and he didn't come back for several hours. And then the Russians sort of rolled in in their armoured vehicles with, with Vitaly, her husband, who was bleeding. They'd beaten him up. His nose had been broken. They searched their property, dragged her, their 19-year-old son and Vitaly off to the police station with bags over their heads. Um, and she was sort of discharged in the middle of the night, came back to her house to discover that they'd, they'd blown it up with a Russian rocket. She left in April not knowing where her husband was. And then in May, she got a call from uh, a forensic doctor and a, a fisherman had been diving for crayfish in the Dnieper River and had found a body of a man with his legs tied together with a heavy object, dumped in the water. And he was identified as Vitaly through, through a mark on his left forearm. And what, what you have to understand is this is what Russian occupation means. It means that you can be dragged from your home, you can be tortured, you can be murdered, you can be disappeared, you can be um, threatened with rape. It's, it's just a sad and terrible story. And I, th- I think the full story of Kherson and life under occupation is yet to be fully told. What else have the Russian forces done with people who stayed? The other facet to this story is what the Russians have been doing in the run-up to their pullout, which is to forcibly deport people, basically make them leave their, their houses. They've been bombarding them with messages saying they have to get out, that they're in danger, that, that the Russian state will take care of them. And a lot of pensioners have gone, some families have gone, uh, some children have gone, and they've been uh, relocated to freezing sanatoria in, in southern parts of Herzog province near, near to Crimea. Some have gone to Crimea themselves and have been dumped in holiday camps. Others have been pushed further east uh, towards Krasnodar and even to Siberia. The deportation and forcible transfer of civilians in occupied territory are prohibited by international humanitarian law and could constitute war crimes or crimes against humanity. In a new report published by Amnesty International on the war in Ukraine, this activity has been a regular feature in the treatment of Ukrainian civilians by Russia. And as well as the deportations, we've seen children being stolen. There have been parents who who sent their kids in the summer to holiday camps in Crimea and never got them back. I mean, there's so much tragedy, it's it's hard to to process. And and for the individuals caught up in it, it's, it's just been an unthinkable period. By Friday, the day after I first spoke to Luke, Ukrainian flags were being raised again in Kherson city. Russian troops were leaving in 
what looked like chaos, and Ukrainian soldiers were coming in, triumphant, singing songs. And by that evening, Volodymyr Zelensky had spoken to the nation, declaring it an historic day. I caught up with Luke again yesterday. So Luke, where did you go after we last spoke and what did you see? I went to a newly liberated village called Mialova on the banks of the Dnieper River. This village community of about, well, it was about a thousand people before the war, 300 had stayed. And it was it was really a, an astonishing day. I mean, we, we were the first journalists to arrive there. I mean, to get there, you had to go through this sort of shattered landscape, littered with um, abandoned Russian infantry fighting vehicles. They'd blown the bridge to get to Mielova. Um, so we had to kind of detour through a, a, a field of, of black uh, sunflowers, um, following a car very carefully because we were worried about mines going past abandoned Russian uh, positions, spooky trenches with artillery shells just kind of lying lying in the dirt. And the, the, the noise of war all around. I mean, there was, it was mostly, it seemed to be Ukrainian fire with kind of boom, boom, boom. And what was also clear to me was how close the new front line is, how, how close the positions are. These Russia. That's Russia. Okay, Russian controlled territory. Left. Left bank. This is right bank. Yes, no. yes. Okay. I mean, the Russians were a few kilometers across um, this expansive water. And I, I started chatting to a couple, um, the, the Demchuks. And a boom went off somewhere nearby, and you know, the husband said, Oh, yeah, we're, 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 we're used to these booms. You're not afraid. And the wife, Alessia, immediately took issue with him and said, no, we're not used to it, it's terrible. And there were Ukrainian military police who were going house to house, and the residents had put flags out. And the military police that are going door to door, what are they doing? Well, the military police were, were looking for collaborators, I think, and trying to figure out who was who. And, and um, I, I immediately started talking to someone called um, uh, Sergei Melnikov, who, who said he'd been there for 245 days, all the way through the occupation. And he said that basically about 10 people out of the 300 collaborated, including a woman who became the informal village pro-Russian mayor who told the Russian soldiers where to stay. And a group of them, they were living opposite his house. I'm at number six, uh, Shevchenko Street, basically a place where the Russian soldiers live for eight, nine months. And it's it's quite surreal. I mean, they left two days ago. Uh, I can see, you can see the coffee cups where they were drinking and rubbish, Russian army ration packs, sardines, a shoe. Um, and they had a storeroom where they put their, their grenades and their shells. This mighty army had fled about 5 a.m. on Wednesday morning um, of, uh, of last week. They packed up in five minutes. And he said, Sergei Melnikov, he said they ran away like goats. And that, that was the end of 
occupation. But th- they were very brave. I mean, M- Melnikov said that he could get a phone reception on his roof and he would go up to the roof above a, a, a yard of geese. And w- when he saw Russian hardware, he would secretly pass the coordinates by text message to his son who lived in uh, Dnipro, big city under Ukrainian control, who would pass it to the Ukrainian army. And on several occasions, he would pass the coordinates and the, the, there would then be a Ukrainian airstrike. So they were all waiting for the Ukrainian army. But, but actually... When it arrived, it was just a moment of euphoria that there were women I saw who were who were handing out homemade pastries, but also there was anger and sadness at what the Russians had done. I mean, Sergei said that they were he compared them to tramps. They were drunken. They were roaming around looking for booze, asking for girls, and they they smashed everything up. I mean, they lived in the village school and nursery, and they blew them up. They looted all of the shops. Basically, the village was left with nothing. Since the Ukrainian troops retook the city, what kind of state have they found it in? Well, because the the Russians actually evacuated. Actually, Kherson is largely intact. I mean, some, some things have been blown up, TV towers... I mean, there is some damage, but not on the scale of Mariupol. I mean, the city has not been levelled or, 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 or razed. But what's remarkable is how quickly Ukraine is scrambling to try and bring back normal life. A train connection, we, we think in the next couple of weeks, there are now mo- mo- mobile phone, Kiev Star is operating again. There are Wi-Fi hotspots which have sprung up. So that's a kind of forward motion, but looking at the the investigators who are coming in, looking at what's been going on in this city for eight months, what evidence have they found of, of what's happened to the people there? But we're already hearing uh, cases of, of abduction uh, and torture. We also hear that they let all the inmates out of the prison. The Russians the, let everybody out of the prison? Yeah, they let everyone out of the prison, apart from the sort of political internees who, who they took with them to, to Crimea. Uh, there was also extraordinary footage which has uh, uh, emerged that they stole the contents of the zoo and they stole the zoo's raccoon and, and the llamas, which were, were shoved into a bus and driven off to Crimea. And I know that Vladimir Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials have, you know, at the same time as celebrating this victory, also raised a note of caution that some Russian soldiers may be hiding out in the city still, disguised as civilians. Has any evidence of that actually come out? Well, I mean, a few, a few guys, a few Russian soldiers have been have been captured. There's also quite significant evidence that quite a few tried to swim across the Dnieper and may have drowned. I mean, that there are abandoned uniforms, flak jackets, weapons by, by, by the bank of the river. What, what, I, what I, I do think will go on is that... that there will be the Russians will try and destroy Kherson from from across the river and shell it and and certainly there was a lot of the when I was there a couple of days ago there was a lot of military activity a lot of noise and and clearly what the Ukrainians are going to do I think is very quickly try and knock out Russian artillery positions within striking range of Kherson so the city can actually function without being terrorized. In terms of the safety of people there those who've stayed, those who are thinking about returning. You know, are the troops going to have to go in and, and demine the area? There's an enormous amount of demining going on. And I was just, just before we spoke, I was, I was looking at the local telegram channels and, and close to where I was in Mialova, the next village along, it's called Novakari, um, a car full of kids went over a mine yesterday. All the, all the kids in the hospital they appear to be alive. I don't know how, how badly hurt they are. And this is a problem all over. I mean, the, the Russians have, have mined 
everything. Uh, they've left booby traps. So there's an enormous process going on at the moment, which will, will take weeks and months, I think, to complete. Gosh, yeah. I mean, as you're driving through that area, like, how, how did it feel to you? Do you feel scared? It felt terrifying, to be honest. I mean, there was one moment coming out of Mielova and an enormous Ukrainian military column was coming towards us with several T-72 tanks. And, and to let it go past, we had to kind of pull off the road into a field. And you, you just take a deep breath and, and hope that you're going to be OK. We were OK. But clearly it's a, yeah, it's a pretty dangerous environment. And first and foremost for the civilians who live there. So President Zelensky... He's been speaking at the G20 summit this week. Ukraine wants peace. Europe wants peace. The world wants peace. And we have seen who is the only one who wants war. What can he do to try and get momentum behind him, to try and build on this victory and and try and push further for this war to end? Well, I, th- I think what Zelensky needs and what he's been signalling is that they need more weapons. I mean, they're burning through ammunition and offensive stuff at the, the, at the most extraordinary rate. So he needs more stuff from, from the, the West to finish the job. Uh, and, and also, I think, to, to understand the Ukrainian concept of victory, which is to drive Russia out of Ukrainian territory once and for all. Zelensky also outlining a peace proposal which includes the end to nuclear threats, more food and energy security, prisoner swaps, and a full withdrawal by Russia. Uh, And and Zelensky's been very clear um, about what Ukraine wants, which is all of its territory back, uh, Russia to pay reparations, uh, and justice. I mean, that's the other interesting thing is, is some kind of accountability. There have been so many war crimes. What did you make of the responses that he got from other world leaders then at the G20? Well, India and China have have largely been sitting this war out, uh, actually, and India's been importing an awful lot of Russian oil as well at at cut cut prices. They they were perhaps a little bit more supportive than they've been previously. Meanwhile, the the German government of Olaf Scholz is now offering to to train Ukrainian soldiers in, in Berlin and to repair broken down military kit. The, the, The big fact is that the the anti-Kremlin, the anti-Putin coalition, for now, I think, it's united. Coming up, how could what's happened in Kherson change the course of this war? Luke, How significant will what's happened in Kherson be to what happens next in this war? I I mean, Russia still occupies a significant amount of Ukrainian territory. But I mean, I think the question now going forward is, can they hold on to it? And my hunch is that um, the Ukrainians will try and sort of strike next around Zaporizhia and Melitopol and try and sort of open a third front there. There's fighting still going on in the east, there's fighting in the south. But one other thing about this war is that the Ukrainians are very good at surprises. We've seen a series of spectacular, almost theatrical attacks. The Crimean bridge linking the Russian mainland with occupied Crimea got, got blown up. Mm. We've seen an attack on the port of Sevastopol in Crimea, occupied by Russia, using ingenious sea drones. And 
I, I'm pretty certain my Ukrainian sources tell me that more of this kind of operation is coming. Basically, Russia has not given up. It's, it's suffered a setback in Kherson, but, but uh, you know, the Russian military is still formidable. In the wake of Russia's retreat from Kherson, we, we've seen very predictably massive missile strikes um, from Moscow um, across Ukraine on infrastructure, specifically on, on power, on electricity substations. And Putin, if he can, if he is able to, will come back and try and reconquer the parts of Ukraine that he's lost. And, and I think Putin's calculation certainly is that sooner or later the West will, will tire of this war and possibly the supply of weaponry to Ukraine will, will drop off. Is that likely? I mean, what, what is the international response to this, to the withdrawal from Kherson? I mean, I, I think the Russian debacle uh, in and around Kherson vindicates the strategy of the democratic world to support Ukraine because Putin basically... He believed that the West was divided, that it was weak, that actually he could he could march into Ukraine and there wouldn't be much of a response. It would be similar to what happened in Crimea in 2014, which, which was not much. And actually, the, the anti-Kremlin international coalition has been surprisingly robust and they have been punching holes in this kind of, you know, mighty golem, which is the Russian army. And finally, Luke, Thinking of the people that you've met who've remained in the region, how do they hope its future will be in the months to come? I was talking to a pensioner called Nikolai Bogun, who, who lived on the front line in Mala Alexandrovka. And the walls of Nikolai's home are decorated with portraits of his family, including his grandchildren. And one of them, 23-year-old Maxime, was killed uh, in the spring in a Russian rocket attack and you know he was telling the story sitting on the sofa of his house with you know the whoop of, of of artillery going on all around us and yeah he was he was crying and he he just sort of said i just want peace you know different flags different uniforms uh, you know soldiers coming and going we, we we just want peace and you know people do want peace they, they want reconstruction they want the basic necessities of life whether it's electricity water, heating, all of which are missing in these areas trashed by Russia. And so, of course, Kherson being liberated is, is, is a big moment. But to actually bring back proper life, proper schools, proper happiness, it, it, it's going to take time. So the stakes are enormous. The, the, the tragedies are vast. But for now, I think Ukraine is in good spirits and they haven't won yet but I think the shape of victory is is beginning to to coalesce Luke thank you so much thank you that was Luke Harding please do keep up with his reporting at theguardian.com this episode was produced by Rose DeLorabiti and sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo the executive producer was Huma Khalili we'll be back tomorrow This is The Guardian.